0: Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland because... As
1: our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us.
0: I'm your host, Drew Hendry, MP, and in this episode, I have a very special guest indeed.
1: I'm Kate Forbes. I'm the member of the Scottish Parliament for the wonderful constituency of Skyle and bavnoch elected for the first time in May 2016, and I'm also the Cabinet Secretary for Finance and the Economy in the Scottish Government.
0: And famously, you got married at a football club.
1: I did. Ross County, to be precise in
0: the summer. Kate, thank you for joining us on uh, Scotland's Choice. Uh, Kate, I always find when I'm uh, asked uh, questions or you know go to you know for example a school or a political event or whatever the public often want to ask me one question which is how did you initially get into politics and how did you become part of the independence movement? How do you answer that question when you're asked?
1: I think the answer I usually give is accidentally and (laughs) Drew you will have known me prior to being elected. So you can probably remember um, the relatively naive young women that started to get involved in politics. My family have been involved with the independence movement for decades. I think my uncles started some of the first SNP branches in your constituency. Uh, three
0: yes, I remember
1: shared with my constituency. So from a very, very early age, I mean, I can't remember a period in which my family weren't supporting independence and pushing for independence. And I guess over my teenage years, I then got more involved. And I remember uh, delivering leaflets as a very strange teenager, long before it was cool to be involved and also helping set up uh, two... YSI branches, one in Edinburgh when I lived there with David Linden, and then being involved with the Highlands one as well. So that's how I got involved in the independence movement, but I never planned to get involved with frontline politics. So that's where the real accident happened in being selected in 2015 for the Holyrood election after Dave Thompson stood down and then getting elected
0: and and we're all glad that you uh, you did Kate one of the uh, one of the things that you've obviously uh, worked through uh, at the time um, was the 2014 independence referendum campaign and the, the three big issues from the campaign at the time that kind of really hit home for most people were pensions borders and currency in your view how have these arguments changed since 2014
1: well people still discuss them and debate them as issues. But each of these areas has fundamentally changed. I mean, we have seen in the last six or seven years, since 2014, so many seismic shifts, whether it's Brexit and our relationship with the EU, whether it's the pandemic and every country, as it were, redrafting their economic prospectus. And so in the same way for Scotland, we, I think, are in a much stronger position. I think a lot of the arguments about independence have become normalised, and I think that there are answers to these issues. Those that pretend there aren't are often the ones trying to sow seeds of doubt and win the argument for for the union. Mm. But I think right now where the argument, for example, on borders was if you vote yes, You will build borders with every single one of the European Union countries. Now the argument is the UK government has created those borders that we didn't want, Mm -hmm. causing huge issues for our fishermen, our, our exporters, our small businesses. And we're saying, actually, we could enjoy the best of both worlds with free movement across the UK and free movement across the EU, by voting to be an independent country within the eu
0: and we we're talking at a time where people are just about to discover if they want to to travel to the eu they're going to have to get a permit and uh uh, you know there's all kinds of things that are happening there like roaming charges are kicking in with some providers all these benefits we've built up over many many years have gone so that was clearly one of the big issues I remember as people worried about their uh, place in the European Union in terms of being an independent country that argument's obviously completely flipped on its head uh, now I just wanted to hone in on one Um, one of those topics, though, in currency. Here on Scotland's Choice, we've touched on the issue of currency a few times already. It's uh, one of the hot potato issues of the 2014 referendum. Can you just remind us what the Scottish Government's official position on currency policy after a yes vote is?
1: Yes, so the the currency position of uh, the the Scottish Government, which is the sort of formal um, position from the party, is that we would want to move to uh, an independent currency as soon as is practicably possible. And in the event of independence, we would, of course, build our institutions, our our fiscal, our monetary institutions, including uh, building a a central bank. And we would want to to move to uh, a position where we had our own currency as soon as possible. So in the day after independence, we would use sterling. So the currency we use the day immediately before independence, the day immediately after would be sterling, it's and, as and, much and sorry, currency
0: as anybody. And sorry to break in, but this is one of the things that, you know, we we're told that was a real problem, but actually this happens time and time again, that, you know, you, no, no country becomes independent and suddenly has a new currency the day after, um, and every country that's become independent has had to make that transition. And, and it's quite normal for that kind of approach to be taken, isn't it?
1: Well, I think it's a question of priorities, and the day after independence... What you want is to start the, the transition to uh, an independent country that requires you to, to build institutions. And the priority is ensuring that the markets have confidence in the stability of your transition mm-hmm. process. So, you know, if I look back to the, the last two years, let's say, in, during the pandemic, we all know. That the priority for people who were perhaps scared of, of losing their jobs, businesses that were worried, was to ensure that they had um, support, financial support. And in that event, they didn't really care what currency was in. They they wanted to know that they could pay their bills, they could pay their mortgages, they could um, receive their pension, they could they could go to the local shop. And in the event of independence, people want to know that, th- that their pensions are secure, their mortgages are secure. And the markets want to know that we have a plan in place that's a transition. And I Mm. think that's why it's so vitally important that, yes, ultimately, Scotland does have its own Scottish currency. But on day one, the priority is stability and confidence for domestic businesses, domestic households, as well as international markets.
0: And you're absolutely right about that confidence thing because you know countries make decisions based on what's best at the time for their citizens I and mean, if you look back into history we know that Ireland uh, pegged the, the the punt to sterling, Denmark pegs the the to the euro, uh, the UK itself even once pegged the uh, the 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 UK sterling pound to uh, uh, to the dollar um, in 1940. So I mean you know these mechanisms are put into place at different times in order to get to a a transition. In 2014, the UK government argued that Scotland, uh, you know, the Scottish government's proposed currency union wouldn't be true independence. It was cherry-picking the best bits. The current plans, though, uh, allow for full financial independence, which the UK can't have a veto over or interfere in, can it?
1: No, it's Scotland's currency as much as it's uh, anybody else's uh, currency, and we would be able to continue to use... At sterling the day after independence as in the same way that we could at the day before independence. The question for an independent Scottish government is how quickly to introduce a, a Scottish currency and our position is that it should be done when it is safe and secure to do so and when it's in the interests of the whole economy because again I go back to what are the arguments that win independence? Mm-hmm. The arguments that win independence is what potential we have for our Scottish economy, the, the potential for greater prosperity, but that is underpinned by a confidence, a reassurance that our financial institutions, our monetary institutions are, are, are safe and, and secure. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you can't separate the argument about currency from the wider argument about, about economic prosperity. The fundamentals of our economy are strong. We need to give reassurance to, to markets and domestic households and businesses alike that we will continue to grow and, and prosper. And currency needs to come in alongside that based on establishing a, a central bank, making sure that our, that our finances are, are sustainable, making sure that we have um, that ability to, to trade and, and invest
0: well, you, you just mentioned trade there, so let, let's talk a wee bit about that. Um, I cover uh, international trade at Westminster. I've seen the absolute debacle that's uh, played out since uh, the UK uh, left the European Union, of course, against the, the, the will of the Scottish people who voted resolutely against that. Uh, but many in the, the, the no-camp reference trade with the rest of the UK as a, a barrier to independence. Um, it, from a Scottish fiscal uh perspective. uh, perspective. What would you say back to that?
1: Well I I would say two points. The first is let's just be real about what we've lost. Anybody who is arguing for the status quo as though it is the better option is clearly not talking to shellfish Mm. and, and seafood producers who are having to export or small businesses who have given up because of the red tape. And as James Withers, James Withers says, is obviously heads up Scotland, Scotland food and Drink is, don't think of this as teething problems. It's not that the Brexit process has been met with teething problems. This is the new status quo. So that would be my my, my first position. That in terms of a border, we believe that Scotland could enjoy the best of both worlds. And you know the Fraser Valender Institute is quite clear that Scotland exports more manufactured goods to the rest of the world than to the rest of the the uk so it's in our interests you know, when it comes to things that are exportable over international borders it's in our interest to make sure that trade tariffs are um are, don't exist and that it's not just about tariffs it's also about ease of exporting to the rest of the eu and we know that it is better for scotland's future if we are inside the EU single market as mm. a result, that is seven times the size of uh, the UK alone and part of the customs union. So there is an incentive for us to be part of the EU. Now, how do you get back in? That's the central question. How do you get back in? If you think the only way back in is being part of the UK, then I think that's wishful thinking.
0: Yeah, because The that- only way back in. Yeah. None none of the Westminster parties are interested in reopening that debate. You know, Labour, for example, um, you know, have have said that they they want to make Brexit work. That means not going in... Uh, to the EU or or taking any moves to that that end, and and you you made a point there about um, you know Scottish UK trade and people not understanding that perhaps or, or realising perhaps that uh, the vast majority of our uh, our manufactured goods were actually exported outside the UK into the rest of the world and and the cross border trade is largely things like services. And, and pipe goods, you know, so oil, gas, renewable electricity, uh, water even, and, uh, and obviously insurance and other financial services as well. So, you know, and, and also I think people should really point to what's happened with independent Ireland. You know, when, before Ireland was independent, uh, 90% of their trade with the, uh, uh, was with the UK. Now it's down to about 12%, you know. So these things change. And as you pointed out, the opportunities are greater, I think, for Scotland yeah. uh, in the future. And um, let, let's talk about uh, levers. What mechanisms for economic growth uh, do we currently lack that only independence can offer us?
1: Yeah. So we're doing a lot of work just now about how we build on Scotland's strengths. And pretty much with every one of those strengths, I can identify a hurdle because the macroeconomic lever rests with the, the UK. I'll give you the obvious topical one, which is energy energy transition. So oil and gas has obviously played a huge role in Scotland's economy over the last few years, but the oil and gas industry itself is investing in the transition. And and renewables in, in Scotland, we have 40% of the UK's renewable potential. We have 25% of Europe's wave and tidal potential. So the potential is enormous. But we know that energy policy is reserved. That means that all the major policy levers beyond planning which is what we do have control over are reserved so that includes incentives that includes tax levers when it comes to uh, incentivizing the renewables industry it also includes um for example access to the grid so mm-hmm. many of us will know about the, the the debacle in terms of linking our islands with an adequate grid connection so that they are able to export, export that the surplus energy they produce. All of that is reserved. So our one lever, really give or take, is about planning. We can do that. What we can't do is is ensure that there are incentives or that energy policy is tailored to um, to, to Scotland. Having said that. That doesn't mean to say that we aren't doing everything possible Well, indeed, indeed,
0: Indeed, Scotland's done amazingly well, given that it's only had planning and environmental powers that push these things forward when you see the amount of renewable electricity we're now generating.
1: Absolutely. 97% in the last records of electricity is from, from renewable sources. But you take the northeast, which needs, for example, absolutely needs carbon capture and storage. I can't make that happen. Hmm. All I can do is lobby another government who perhaps have greater incentives to invest in English ports. So we are doing this with one hand tied behind our back. That's just energy. I could talk about food and drink, and we've already touched on export eh, restrictions eh, when it comes to to food and drink. And I could talk about pretty much any other sector that wants to grow, who will tell you and they'll tell me their biggest challenge is access to skills mm-hmm. and labour mm-hmm. and the labour shortage is meaning that a lot of our brilliant sectors are unable to trade as fully as they as they would want to because of the ending of freedom of movement. So there's just a few yeah. examples.
0: Well, I, I just want to come to another uh, few of those things in just a second, but you mentioned one of the subjects that I've returned to a number of times there, which was carbon capture and storage. And we were talking about the 2014 referendum earlier when we were promised, you know, there was going to be a, a billion pound investment at Peterhead. Um, and then as soon as the uh, referendum was over and the uh, 2015 election was, uh, was declared, no sooner was that did that happen than George Osborne pulled the plug on that. And again, we had that tease about, you know, the North East getting uh, carbon capture and storage because it's perfectly suited to all the infrastructures there. It's the absolute right place to do it. But as you said, uh, priorities were for Westminster were elsewhere, uh, rather than doing the right thing by Scotland and the right thing by the planet they've made a a different decision on that but but we're also talking when when we come back to the powers here we're also talking about the ability to have control over pensions and employment law wages workers rights VAT corporation tax all of those things are really important uh, levers and you're working just now with over 70% of the revenue raised and 40% of the uh, spending lying at Westminster in simple terms which all of our listeners can understand how does that inhibit your ability the Scottish government's ability to govern more effectively given that it doesn't have those powers
1: well it's probably best to just start with examples where I think there is a perception out there that Scotland for example holds all the major tax powers we don't you Said that, that 70% of the, the revenue raising is determined by Westminster. That's right. On top of that, we can't access borrowing hmm. for day to day services. So, in the event of a pandemic where we might have to take health decisions for very good reasons, we can't also take the financial decisions alongside that because we're dependent on the UK government for extraordinary sources of income. And we saw that time and time again during the pandemic where I had to make decisions in the interest of people's health and livelihood, but without knowing if funding would be coming. And that's a huge degree of risk. If you think of of procuring PPE, you know, we went ahead, we procured PPE, we procured ventilators very quickly. I did all that, but it was several months until we actually had confirmation that there would be consequential funding to cover PPE. It's a big risk. Indeed. Now, I didn't stop on the procuring of PPE because I needed to proceed. <laughs> but that, that would be one very topical example. But going forward, when it comes to uh, economic recovery, we all know that one of the, the most effective ways of delivering faster economic recovery is significant investment in infrastructure, big capital spend uh, on infrastructure. But what we've seen is that the UK government has, um, on one hand, in the last budget by one significantly cut capital and on the other hand has now started to deploy its own, uh, its its capital funding through the Internal Markets Bill. So it invests in UK government projects Hmm. rather than working with us. And just this morning I had a a meeting with a a local community about major capital investment they want to see in a harbour project. And they're hoping to apply to the leveling up fund. But the, the application process is so convoluted and opaque. How can I help them access that money? And yet I can't, I can no longer direct them towards leader, I can no longer direct them towards EU structural funding, which was a much more transparent process. So there's two examples: one on the sort of macro level of, of the pandemic and on the micro level of how communities see significant investment in their funding and the more that we see capital directed towards UK government pet projects the less bluntly there will be for hospitals for schools for the roads that the people of Scotland have determined our priorities.
0: You've just said that that we didn't have meaningful borrowing powers and that's true people who are arguing against independence always throw back that yes we do have borrowing powers can you just clarify you know what those are and how they work in effect?
1: Yeah, so we have a, a number of borrowing powers as part of the fiscal framework, but those borrowing powers are for very specific uh, purposes and they are capped. So if I take uh, resource borrowing powers, that can't be spent for day-to-day hmm. services. That can only be spent on forecast error. And by forecast error, I just mean when the forecasters say that we're going to raise X in tax, but we actually actually raise Y in tax. To make up the shortfall, I don't want to be using money that would otherwise be spent on nurses' salaries. So that's where we can we can have have um, we have borrowing powers to cover that. The challenge, though, is that the cap is arbitrary; it doesn't go up with inflation. It's 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 fixed, and there have been times when the the forecast error is bigger than the mm. the, the the cap, which means you do have to use actual spending power spending money for um, reasons that are with our control, i.e. They're, they're, they're determined by forecasters. We also have borrowing powers for capital, but again, those are, are capped. So we can borrow up to £450 million on an annual basis, but there's an overall cap on that um, of, of £3 billion accumulatively. So we have to use that as carefully and as sparingly as possible.
0: So it doesn't allow you the flexibility to do the kinds of things that would have been uh, really helpful than you wanted to do. You've asked the, go- the UK government for these powers. I know I've repeated that call in Westminster to, to say, look, just give us the flexibility to be able to respond to support businesses and communities, um, you know, better, given our unique circumstances that here. that Well, not so unique circumstances, but given the unique position and policy that we want to take to support these uh, businesses. And yet that's been denied to you.
1: That's right. So local authorities have more flexible borrowing powers than the Scottish government does in Scotland. And I think that illustrates the point that we should be able to borrow and manage the affordability of that. Mm -hmm. I still have to pay back borrowing Mm -hmm. so I can only borrow at an affordable level. So this would not be about borrowing going wild it would just be about the flexibility to take it uh, and make intelligent decisions.
0: And of course, any uh, government would want the ability to be able to make the right decisions for its people at the right time. We, we were talking about the the shortfall for communities just now. You were talking about the levelling up fund and the difficulty for uh, getting uh, cash into uh, communities for different projects. One of the things that being in the, the Highlands... Uh, you, You'll know from your previous experience. I know from my previous experience was that we could access EU funding uh, for that. Uh, Brexit has really kind of uh, changed that fundamentally. And you you were talking about the, this convoluted leveling up fund, leveling up fund, which is not replacing the funds that have been lost to the Highlands. The, the, this has changed utterly. Changed the the not only the the access for support for communities, but it's changed the political landscape. Brexit. Uh, hasn't it? And and the situation that Scotland finds itself in.
1: Absolutely. Um, Of that there's no doubt. I think we see it most acutely in some of the most disadvantaged communities in Scotland and I mentioned the Highlands and Islands in terms of its rurality in sharp contrast to to Westminster rule for years. The EU EU actually had a far more distributive approach, in other words prioritising areas with the greatest need. So if you just but compare the Categorisation of the highlands as per Westminster priorities which is the lowest category compared with the EU categorisation, which was the highest priority you see the contrast and there are very few roads that you don't drive down in the most rural and remote parts of the highlands which haven't been part funded by the 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 EU so I would say that's one big change but beyond just the financial impact I think the relationship with the, the the UK government has changed I mean the UK government is Actively anti-devolution, in mm. my view, in a way that we haven't actually seen from previous UK governments. Actually, we haven't seen from previous Tory mm. governments. Where if you think back to the review of the fiscal framework, and we at the time, I think, came to a compromised position with the UK government, and there was an there was an appetite to to get the fiscal framework over the over the line. Now going into a review of the fiscal framework there are areas being mooted that would be unthinkable in previous years uh, in terms of the the Scottish government's um, uh, Mm. fiscal levers. So we're almost in a position where I will be pushing for further powers. But actually, I just want to hold on to the powers that we do have on behalf of the Scottish people, uh, never mind uh, give them up, as we've seen through the Internal Markets Bill. And we're only starting to see the Internal Markets Bill being being used uh, and and I think that will we'll see increased use of the internal markets bill where uh, money is spent according to UK priorities not Scottish
0: priorities and th- there's there's no doubt that that internal market bill the internal market act was just a mechanism to claw back powers to Westminster that uh, uh, from the devolved government so I think it's really important to point out that the first minister of Wales, a uh, unionist politician, Mark Drakeford, was also uh, very much against this, and his government and Parliament were very much against the Internal uh, Market Act as well, and the the, the fact that it does basically uh, hamstring a lot of things in terms of you know we, the, the the standards, the regulations, uh, you know, as you said, spending. There's almost no area um, of spending that the Internal Market Bill can't touch, and it gives an awful lot of power back to uh, particularly the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy at Westminster, one person <laughs> to uh, to decide what happens in Scotland. It's uh, bizarre that those people might then try in some way to claim that they're supporting uh, devolution. Clearly not. Can, can I move on to, to pensions? I spoke to our, our fellow Highland uh, colleague and our Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, um, a few weeks ago on pensions and he made the point that uh, pension rights in an independent Scotland would be unaffected. Is, is that something you agree with um, and, and can you tell our listeners who may have uh, family about uh, worried about their pensions if that's the case? Do you agree with them on that?
1: Well I wouldn't dare disagree with the, <laughs> with Ian Blackford, um, the expert on all things pension. Um, so I, I, I would agree with him. I mean you know, in terms of the simple version, the, the majority of, of financial arrangements are, are private contracts between individuals, households, businesses, and financial institutions. Those contracts are are, are made in sterling, and they would continue to be in sterling unless uh, the parties agreed to change their their terms. And we talked earlier about the uh, approach to, to currency, and you know, Scotland would continue to, to to use sterling until the time was right to change. So, you know. Occupational pensions are are governed by 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 trustees. Um, they're established by employers, and entitlement would be would be unaffected by independence or, or where people chose to live. So, you know, and, and it's it's the same with 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 mortgages. Um, they are they would continue uh, and be regulated by a, a Scottish regulator in line with existing practice. So, long story short, uh, I think Ian Blackford is is absolutely right in terms of uh, protecting uh, pensions, uh, protecting uh, mortgages. And I think it's really important that we set out the, the fine detail so that there's no, no fear mm. um, and no scaremongering in advance of uh, uh, an independence referendum. And I would just perhaps refer people to the Growth Commission, yeah. which went into this issue in some detail and it uh, talked about the fact that the Scottish government would you know negotiate arrangements for regulation of occupational pensions with the rest of the UK um, since a lot of these schemes are are, are UK wide
0: and, and of course you know people uh, you know obviously naturally concerned about pensions but one of the opportunities for Scotland is to correct the injustice that shows that the UK certainly before we left the EU has the worst state pension uh, in the EU and one of the worst in the OECD um, that's a situation that's been uh, that's materialized under uh, UK Westminster uh, control and we, we see the, the threats to the pensions coming forward with the triple lock just now again a promise in f you know a fear story in 2014 that we'd lose the triple lock and, and that's going now anyway um, you know they, these are these are also opportunities for Scotland to take a much more uh, uh, fair look at for people and and to find a new way to do uh, things in, in uh, using the powers of independence.
1: Absolutely it's another example where Anybody who thinks the status quo is fixed and can't get worse has been probably awakened and surprised by some of the changes that have been made to pensions in the same way that it's been made elsewhere. Mm. And the bottom line is that you and I can debate what we believe should happen with pensions and we can debate that as much and as long as we want, but we can't do anything about it Mm -hmm. because the powers lie with another government which is made up of an administration that the people of Scotland resoundingly reject and have rejected at every election since the 1950s. So it's an interesting debate and I would like to do something about it on behalf of uh, our older population. But until that point, we can do nothing but debate it.
0: Well, well, let's talk about something that's also uh, been... Uh, thrown up time and time again. You, last November, you were asked about Scotland's perceived deficit, and the uh, the the Jers figures were brought up—the general expenditure and revenue Scotland figures. Could could you outline uh, what those figures are and, and why they might not be entirely uh, reliable when it comes to judging Scotland's economy post independence?
1: So obviously, last year in particular, as with most other countries, um, the the deficit figure for for most countries has uh, increased because countries are spending more than their tax revenue in order to fund extraordinary measures and that's the same for the UK government and the JERS figures allocates a uh, population share of what the UK government is spending uh, spending 40% of the spending figure in JERS is reserved so it's policy decisions taken by the UK government, 70% of the revenue-raising figures are are reserved. That means they're outside the control of the Scottish government. The Scottish government, every year, without fail, must balance its budget. We can only spend what we raise or what we receive on d to d services, and we do that. So you've then got to ask, well, if you think there's a problem with these figures, where does that responsibility lie? And if you've got the Scottish government balancing its budget, then the question is why the the, the UK government policy decisions are leading to, to, to these um, figures. So, you know, we have seen um, other countries, as I said, uh, around the world um, choosing to do things differently. You take Norway, for example, um The deficits of 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 countries including Norway have increased but they also were able to draw down from the sovereign wealth fund Mm. Uh, so government debt in Norway fell uh, rather than increased in, in in 2020 because they have alternative access to funding and you know our position basically is if you believe that the GERS figures are a problem then you must by extension in a logic and rational universe believe that the current constitutional arrangements are a problem which is another government determining how money is spent and then allocating it to scotland so having said all that in the event of independence we would absolutely want to ensure that our finances are on a stable footing mm. every country around the world is refreshing its economic perspectives the fundamentals of the Scottish economy are strong there's great potential And we would want to manage our finances in a far more sustainable fashion than they're currently being managed under the current constitutional arrangements.
0: And and just that you've explained that really, really well, but just underline one of the points about the spending priorities that are being uh, made for us by a government in Westminster. Again, they're investing in uh, renewing nuclear weapons. Uh, you know we've seen that you know spending across a range of things that uh, you know the people of Scotland wouldn't want um, you know these are not choices that we can make here because they're being made for us and of course those those are being uh, brought up the UK has obviously run deficits as well over that uh, period of time and and indeed if you look back over the history of the JERS figures Scotland's actually more than paid its way even by those figures uh, with all the caveats that you've uh, made I, I want to um, move on to to talk about um, Scotland's future soft power, the growth uh, of that that we've seen. Uh, Scotland has been engaging through the Scottish government's actions, um, and uh, with the outside world outside um, uh, by establishing offices in Europe and other places to to uh, to to project Scotland better to make sure that we can increase uh, trade and do what we can with the again with the limited powers we've got against the background of the UK entrenching, withdrawing from uh, the world and becoming much more of a little Britain. Where do you see Scotland, an independent Scotland, sitting and fitting into the world stage?
1: Firstly, I think it would fit very nicely. I think we've seen, we saw perhaps some of it come to the public eye during COP26, where I certainly experienced as a representative of the Scottish government, Far more of an active interest from countries across the world, who were making requests for meetings with representatives of, of the Scottish government. We saw that particularly from the United States, but also countries like like India, where there's a particular interest in our renewables industry, um, and and other European countries. So, in terms of fitting uh, in the world, we are a small, advanced economy with enviable economic strengths and assets. As is often said, I think it's Andrew Wilson that says it, in the event of independence, we would be one of, if not the richest countries to have become independent at the point of independence. And I look at some of these other countries that are doing exceptionally well, like Denmark, and nobody's suggesting that we become a Denmark. But if Denmark can do what they've achieved without necessarily the natural assets that we have if singapore can do what it has done Hmm. where it you know it's had to import sort of drinking water at times then surely scotland can do it it's not inevitable i'm not somebody who believes that success is inevitable unless you invest the time the effort and ensure the delivery of the right policies but alongside some of our other small advanced European countries. I think we have much to offer Europe and the world uh, and we're already seeing that within the, the limits that we have. So how much more can we do uh, without the limits?
0: Well, of course, you mentioned we, the water that Singapore uh, imports. We don't have to import water. We've got plenty here. In fact, we share uh, Loch Ness in our uh, constituencies, which has more fresh water than, than all the lakes and rivers. Uh, in the, the rest of the UK put together. And a monster. And a monster as well. Uh, but but you were talking there about the assets that Scotland has and about where we would be, you know, on independence and going in with those strengths, those resources that we have just now. One of those strengths and resources is the the brand of Scotland, isn't it? It's um, You know, Scotland is world-renowned. It's, uh, you know, somewhere that... Uh, you know, people in other countries get excited about, about excited about making relationships with, about uh, visiting. It's, it's a very, very strong international brand. And uh, again, it would be, you know, to become independent of that brand would be a real advantage.
1: Absolutely. I think that the brand, which is based on our culture, our heritage, our character, all of which can be lost, but which we have, you know, tried to protect. And in that vein, you know, I would really... Reference and show respect to many Scottish businesses who are the ones who have built that brand on the back of their quality products and their services. Our food and in- drink industry is renowned. We've seen export significantly increase because the quality of the product, which is based on the quality of our natural asset, but also because of the integrity and the approach by the Scottish businesses. And and that's where you know many export missions as it were, have been so successful because that brand is recognizable. But it's not a brand from 200 years ago or even 100 years ago. It's a brand that's been built up painstakingly over the last few years as a brand of, of quality. And we should do everything within our power to protect that, not lose that. And that's where any reputational damage that comes as a result of the UK becoming entrenched and removing itself it's actually dangerous and detrimental, and people often ask. And I'll finish with this, but people often ask, why does the Scottish government spend money on, for example, export and trade hubs in other countries? Well, it's precisely to bolster and protect that Scottish brand and ensure there are as many opportunities for Scottish businesses and Scottish
0: exports. Kate Forbes, uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, giving us your time today and joining us on Scotland's Choice.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.